Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a beautiful day and for the occasion that uh, many people are here but also away. We're grateful for our country and Independence Day. And we pray that you'll help us as we think about matters uh, this morning as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm going to take a, a little break uh, from the Westminster Confession. I want to talk a little bit about some stuff I'm working on. My, I'm working on a book, as, as many of you know, uh, entitled uh, How to Defeat the New Communism in Your Spare Time. So it's gotten me thinking about a lot of things. Um, and also, some of you know that I'm a candidate for city council and battleground, so that's got me thinking about things. So I, I thought a little, I've been thinking about the political rhetoric of Jesus. I've also been thinking about psyops. So I'll talk a little bit maybe about psyops uh, later, the psyops of Satan and the psyops of God. They're actually very interesting things to study. Uh, but political rhetoric of Jesus. So I want to talk a little bit about how Jesus approached things and how different that his approach was from generally the approach that we take. So the first place to begin uh, the, the study is uh, Matthew chapter 10. This is where Jesus is sending out uh, the 72, right? So, and he's giving them a little brief briefing before you, they, they head out. And so this is what you're about to, this is what you should expect. This is how things are going to go. And uh, he says uh, to them, beginning in verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, pretty strong warning. He's not making it sound prettier than it is. He's essentially saying that these people are not going to like you. Be ready. And he goes on to say, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Most of the time, we're about as wise as a dove and as innocent as a serpent. <laughs> We're just complete dolts when it comes to stuff. We just stumble right into all the traps, and then we wonder why things turn out the way they do. You know, we put our foot in our mouths, and we say, how did I find myself in this situation? Well, it's because you assumed that you would be liked. When you go into this, recognize, remember, these are wolves. They want your blood. You're not... So one of, the, one of the key things to keep in mind when you're ever engaged in any kind of public debate is you're really not talking to the other guy. He's like a prop. <laughs> the audience is who you're talking to. You're not trying to convince the other guy. He is there to, to, to look good at your expense. That's it. So recognize he's not your friend. So like when I spoke at University of Idaho, I knew exactly what I was getting into. I knew they all would hate my guts right off the, from the start. So I said, okay, that's a given. <laughs> They're going to be out to get me. Now, what they didn't know is I knew that and that I, because I taught philosophy, was more than they expected. And so I set them up. The whole thing was my setup. I really made them sort of kind of like not know what to do with me. Um, I, I can go into all that kind of stuff, but that's what you need to be able to, to think of how you need to think. You need to say, okay, these people are out to get me. They're wolves. They're out to get me. The other, the other sheep are potentially in the audience. Now, at the end of that event, uh, it's got like 40,000 views now on, on uh, YouTube. At the end of the event, 
the people in the audience came to me and said, we're not with them. So there were protesters. There were people with signs and, bull, and bullhorns. There were, it was police presence. There were people who acted up during my talk, had to be escorted out of the room by the police. It was, it was nuts. It was like everything you expect in the middle of Portland. <laughs> that's exactly what I was expecting. I knew that's the way it was going to be. So uh, at the end, I had, there was a line, maybe if, I don't know, 20 people came and wanted to talk to me. And these were not believers. These were people who say, I came here today because I wanted to hear what you have to say. I'm not with those people. There are some things I'd like to talk to you about. That's exactly who I was shooting for, were those folks. So keep that in mind. These are not your friends. So if you go into this, you should, you should expect to be misquoted in the newspaper. Are we that dumb <laughs> that we think that the people who run the newspapers are on our side? We're, they're not. Expect it. So, so Jesus is saying, expect this. Expect this. Be wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. And he goes on the next verse. Beware of men. <laughs> Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You're going to be mistreated. Um, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Then he goes on to say some important things. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say. Now, that's, I've experienced this. You know, even though I've had my plan, there have been like these things that like occur to me on the spot that I had not planned. You know, I'm like, okay, use, you know, I'll say that. And uh, it's been marvelous to see how those uh, surprising, unplanned things have helped at different points. But that doesn't mean you don't have a plan. Jesus is saying, have a plan, right? Expect certain things. Expect to be mistreated. They're not going to be fair. Don't, don't be naive. You're going to get grilled. You're going to get mistreated. You're going to have your motives impugned. You're going to be accused of things. You're going to be attacked. Now, this is not something you wake up every day and say, boy, I can't wait to be attacked and mistreated by people. <laughs> now, maybe if you were like a person that was longing for martyrdom in the first century, and that was a weird problem. We actually had that problem. There were these people that were just like, you know, throwing themselves before authorities, hoping that they would be killed. I'm not one of those guys. I, I like peace and quiet. <laughs> I like, you know, being around people who like me. I'm, I'm a normal person, you know. I don't want to be hit. <laughs> I don't want to be accused. I don't want to be attacked. But it's going to happen. So Jesus tells us that. Now, one of the things that's worth thinking about is, remember that, you know, WWJD, everybody put it on their wrists. Then they would fail to ask the question in certain important contexts. So let me give you an example. When you die, what would Jesus do? Would he be buried or cremated? Buried. buried. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's amazing how people kind of go mentally lunch on certain th subjects. You know, like, hey, that's not important. Well, I mean, what would Jesus do? Well, throw himself on a pyre and let him be burned, his body be burned? No. You know, it's actually something that, you know, it's worth considering. What would Jesus do in this situation? Now, what would Jesus do when it comes to dealing with hostile crowds? Would he just kind of stumble and bumble his way along? Or would he have like a set of things that he kind of did? 
Let me give you an example, a few examples. This is, the reason why this is something you, you, you maybe you have never thought about before is no one ever thinks about it. <laughs> never, no one ever asks the question. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. And uh, the thing that I want you to note here is that um, Jesus didn't take questions at face value. Either you frame the question or you're framed by the question. Never forget that. Most of the time when people raise their hand, like in a political setting, and say, what would you do about this? They're setting you up. They're not really looking for an answer. Just give it to me straight. Well, the reason why you want it straight is because you want to kill me. And we see that in this story, uh, beginning at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Now, do they mean that? <laughs> or are they setting him up? Are they flattering him? They're setting him up. Uh, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Either way you answer it, you're dead. Think about it. So you have the Pharisees and the Herodians. Do you know who the Herodians were? They were the people who supported the king, Herod. Where did Herod get his authority? From the Jews? No, from Caesar. He was an appointed ruler. The Senate of Rome had made him king of the Jews. You think it, you know, it's going to be okay if you say, no, you don't pay taxes to Caesar. Well, all the Pharisees are like, yay! And all the Herodians, you're dead. Say it the other way, pay taxes. Go ahead and pay your taxes. Herodians, Pharisees, either way, you lose. You might, you know, you would say, tails, I win, heads, you lose. <laughs> That's the way it works. They're setting you up. Don't take the questions at face value. Most of the time, you're being set up. So if that's the case, what do you do? What would Jesus do? He asks his own question. He answers the question with a question. Do you have a coin on you? He's got a coin. Whose head is that? Caesar's head. Ah, you're carrying around a graven image in your pocket, are you? He doesn't say that. <laughs> he implies it. I wonder how that makes you look. <laughs> but he's subtle, very subtle. And he says, give it to Caesar, what is Caesar? And to God's, what is God's? And what do they do when he tells them that? They're stunned. They're stunned. Uh, and when they heard it, they marveled and left him and went away. We need to learn how to talk like this. We need to know, I'm being set up, this is a trap. There's no way I can win. They want me to look really bad. They're not my friends. Now, I'm civil. I'm not nasty. I don't accuse them of anything. I just ask my own question. The person who asks the question 
is the one who sets the terms. It's a power move. It's psyops. So psyops is a marvelous term that's been coined here recently. Um, psyops is psychological operations. And all spiritual warfare is psychological operations. Psychology, psyche, soul, logos, psychology is the study of the soul. So the Garden of Eden, the serpent engages in psyops. There's the psyops of Satan and the psyops of God. Psyops of Satan you see you know, on display in the Garden of Eden. What's the first thing the accuser does? Remember, he's known as the accuser. He accuses God of malintent. When you start with an accusation, you put the other party on the defensive. You robe yourself in the clothing of light, of righteousness. I'm the defender of righteousness. I'm accusing you. Defend yourself. That's how it works. Psyops. So one of the things that whenever somebody leads with a, an accusation, uh, I don't defend myself. I'm not in any, I'm not in, I don't need to defend myself if it's a false accusation and if they don't have anything on me. Um, you know, one of the ways to respond to that is, do you always begin a conversation with an accusation? It's very polite. You know, you must be a real great person at a party. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing how really manipulative people do this. Think about all the, the manipulative people in your life. I've had a number of manipulative people I've known over the years. This is one of their favorite techniques. Put you on the defensive. Accuse you right off the bat. You're like, you know, the word diabolical. So that's a, a name we, for Satan, Diablo. In case you played video games, you've probably seen <laughs> a game called Diablo. Dia, dia, Diablo, Diabolo, Diabolical, it's a name for Satan. And it means, uh, it's, a, it's a synonym for accusation, for accusing. Dia, through, balo, throw, throwing something through someone else. So the accusation, the reason why it pierces, the reason why it like, makes you feel uncomfortable is because that's exactly what it's supposed to do. It's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's malice directed at you. Now, if you've done something genuinely wrong, then that needs to be addressed. I'm not saying that there are, are never conditions in which this is something that can't be done in the right way. I mean, if you've stolen something from me, I'm going to say you stole something from me, <laughs> right? But I can back it up. Innocent until proven guilty. One of the biggest problems with critical theory, critical race theory, CRT, all that kind of stuff, is you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. That's what systemic racism is about. You are ontologically guilty because you're white. You're ontologically guilty because you're a man. That kind of stuff. So immediately you're on the defensive. I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta justify myself. Don't even play the game. Never justify yourself with those people. Just say something like, I, I believe in innocent until proven guilty. Prove it. Prove it. I'm not defending myself. You're the one who has the burden of proof. Anyway, psyops. Now, psyops of God, let, let me think about, uh, give me an example of the psyops of God at work. Gideon. Marvelous episodes. No, it's not like God doesn't engage in psychological operations. He does. Think about what happens with the story of Gideon. So remember, 
you know, Gideon is, uh, you know, leading the Israelites against the Midianites, right? They're oppressors. And he musters an army, and God says, too big, too big. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I need all these guys. Nope, too big. Got to win them with down. So he gets it down, 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 300 guys. Okay, this is the plan. Get a torch. Get a clay pot. Get a trumpet. This is how we're going to win. Okay, so you light the torch. You put it in the clay pot, which means people can't see it, right? It's there. It's lit. And then you surround the enemy, right, in the middle of the night. And God sends dreams to, their, to them about Gideon. So they're a little bit edgy. And then that's uh, the signal. What happens? Remember what happens? They smash the pots, which means what? Suddenly, poof, 300 torches out of nowhere. Woof, they're surrounded by light. And then they blow the trumpets and then they shout, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And then what happens? You remember? They come out of their tents and they kill themselves. Gideon wins the battle without using any force. Psyops. God, what, what God does is he takes the malice that they had in store for you know, the Israelites and turns it back in on them. The one who digs the pit falls into the pit. The psyops of God is to use the sin of the wicked against themselves. To use it against them, to redirect it. You, you, know, you had this in store for my people, you're going to experience it. You get it back. So, anyway, um, the one who frames the question has the power. So, you don't necessarily respond to a question unless you want to unless it, it serves the end that you're trying to uh, pursue. So any, any thoughts about that before I move on to the next two tactics? Yep. In a very narrow scope of fighting, in, in Matthew, it's addressing his disciples as not really having the same position we might, not, we might have here today in the corporate sense in, in dealing with our leadership and having elections. <clears throat> so in today's... Uh, realm if you're battling somebody who's like the wolf and they are making accusations it does seem that if you're going to use a form of warfare the only way to put them on their heels for the sake of the crowd is to also accuse them rather than defend yourself uh, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, I think there's something to that but I think that the way Jesus approached it is by reframing the question uh, he, he lets them accuse themselves. So in other words, um, what you see in different instances uh, is, you know, Jesus raises a question. Well, we're actually going to get to an example in a minute, but before I, I get there, let's, let's take a look at another story. This is from uh, John, Gospel of John, uh, chapter 7. And, uh, and this has to do with timing. Timing is everything. Um, so beginning at uh, verse 1, going through verse 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Okay, he knows he's got some people who are out to get him. He's not ready to, to, to present himself to them at that time. And you'll see why. Now the, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers... Isn't this marvelous? His brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, 
that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be uh, known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, are these brothers really very brotherly? Or are they resentful? <laughs> kind of like maybe uh, not uh, supportive <laughs> at this point? Imply, this is what it implies. Because what Jesus says to them it kind of makes it plain. Jesus said to them, verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. <laughs> you know, timing doesn't mean anything to you. It means a lot to me. <laughs> uh, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to come up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So just because you're taunted and challenged doesn't mean that you just kind of stumble and bumble. Your, you know how you, you can make a, a bully look really stupid is by, you know, embarrassing him, you know, in public and making him kind of overreact. And, and in that overreaction, you've got him, right? So he keeps his cool in all this. Now, the way the, way the story unfolds, though, is he does go to the feast, after, uh, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, uh, then he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some, uh, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. For the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. There are a lot of things going on here that are fascinating. Now, what is Jesus doing? He might be doing a little reconnaissance. You know, he's listening in on conversations. He's noting what people are saying. Um, and they're afraid to, to openly support him. Now, a lot of the time, uh, people will be supportive of the things that we stand for, but they might be afraid to do it openly. And we just have to kind of sort of recognize that. You know, any, in any given situation, you might find a very small group of vocal people who are out for your blood. And you could take that and infer from that that everybody in the room is out to get you. It's not the case. There may be a bunch of people there who are very sympathetic, but they just don't want to be the next target. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So uh, if, since that's the case, sometimes people who are, and this gets back to PSYOPs, very bold in their, their uh, you know, ac- accusing other people of things can dominate a situation. You can have a small minority of people dominating the, you know, sort of the agenda, uh, the tone, uh, the messaging, that kind of stuff. And one of the things you have to remember, too, is that sometimes those people have some powerful allies, maybe in media, something like that. So I don't expect that, say, the reflector, is going to be all that keen about me. I just don't expect it. Um, the best I can hope for is neutral. And then I have to think about what stuff do I give them? And when? And how? There's a lot of th- stuff that relates to timing. So I've, you know, there have been people who've wanted me to do certain things already. I've said, not time. Not time. When my time comes... <laughs> If it comes, then I will, you know, be able to address that, those things then. But at the moment, it's, I'm not ready for that. Um, 
And now you could be taunted, are you afraid? You know, I'm not going to respond to that. You know. So about the middle of the feast, then this is fascinating, uh, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. So he's in the spot, and then he actually steps up and addresses the crowd. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but, is, uh, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, so you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So there's some interesting accusations going back and forth here. Uh, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and, all, and you all marvel at it. He's referring to uh, the healing on the Sabbath, which is another thing. It was the timing. He could have healed him any day. He, he picked the Sabbath to make a point. So think about it this way. Um, if you're a general, what do you want, to fight on the terrain that your enemy has selected or the terrain that you've selected? You want to fight on the terrain that you've selected. You want to control the terrain. Choose the spot. Choose the time. You want to be ready. Now, sometimes you're going to get surprised. You know, at those moments, then you need to be able to think quick on your feet. (laughs) So it's not like you always have the ability to choose. Sometimes you'll get ambushed. You know, sometimes it'll be a situation where you trust somebody, and the next thing you know, it's Joab with the knife. You know, (laughs) hey, brother. Remember that scene? <laughs> you know, those things can happen. Um, but as best you can, try to choose. So Jesus has chosen uh, this. He chose the day on which he says, he gives them uh, an example. It says in verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, obviously referring to Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So you, you, you do that on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So, you know, he's challenging them, um, and he's setting the terms of the engagement along the way. Any thoughts about that? A thought that Jesus, just on this text, like what you just said, Jesus was remonstrating with them pretty strong. However, I think there was a lot of love coming from the Savior towards these indignant people that wanted him dead. He's, he's not just body slamming them, but he's, he's engaging with them, saying, you know, he's trying to get them to start thinking a little more about what they're doing. You know, I think there is a, a, a lovingness of our Savior towards these, his enemies. Well, he certainly told us we should love our enemies and pray for them. I just think in that term, even when he's, when he's referring to you know healing on the Sabbath, he's trying to show them that isn't this is what you guys are thinking? This isn't the wrong way to go, you know, the wrong way to think. I think he's, yeah, he's judging them, but there's also in that judgment there's love, and and I think that we 
it's hard for us, but we have with our kids is a good way to operate. I think that we judge them, we discipline them, but we're loving them. We're trying to to win their souls to God, and I think that you might want to get into an argument with your enemy, but is it just for the sake of winning, or are you trying to actually? Well, let's think about arguments. Your argument with your neighbor is not the same thing as Jesus at the feast. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're engaging in conversation with, say, somebody who you know, care about and you're arguing to try to bring them around to a, a better way of thinking about things, our problem is, is that we take that into the public sphere. Now, there are, you can be very gracious, uh, and a, a really good example of a really gracious um, interlocutor or public debater was G.K. Chesterton. So he debated uh, George Bernard Shaw in many public settings. George Bernard Shaw was a kind of rabid atheist and uh, kind of a nasty dude. And um, Chesterton made him look uh, really awkward by complimenting him. My great friend, George Bernard Shaw, whose towering intellect (laughs) makes us all feel like dwarfs. Nevertheless, I must disagree. <laughs> Things like that. You know. So he made it hard for you not to like him. And in fact, Bernard Shaw did kind of have a sneaking affection for, for him. <laughs> so that's, that's great. That's, that's true. That reminds me of two different types of people that I, in my history, uh, I've seen Ronald Reagan uh, debate and I've seen Trump debate. And sort of what you're saying is sort of the two different versions. Now, I'm not saying everything that they said. I'm just doing a general picture of of how they come at people. It's very sort of interesting. And I think depending on the person's temperament and and giftedness is pretty much the degree they're going to go. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, when you think about those two guys, uh, Trump is definitely the street fighter. And... um, he frames other people. It's a really significant... If, study his techniques, um, not because you want to necessarily employ them, but they're ingenious. He is a lot smarter than people give him credit for. So, like, when he tags you with a nickname, you never live it down. That's what, exactly what he's after. He wants every time anyone thinks of you to think Pocahontas. That's, and it sticks. It's brilliant. Another thing he's really good at is playing dumb. Uh, so he doesn't care if you think he's dumb. It makes you kind of uh, lazy in your interaction with him. It leaves you, it, 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 may, it, may, it means that you, you, because you don't take him seriously, you're likely to make a mistake. So one of the the marvelous things about this is because all the people he's debating can't bear the thought of not being thought of as smart. They're willing to, to, they want to look smart at any cost, even if it makes them look stupid. (laughs) But what Trump does is that he's willing to be considered stupid so long as he wins. That's the thing. Now, again, I'm not saying that that's something you and I should do, but it's brilliant. It's, it's a, he's a, he went to the University of Pennsylvania. It's, one, it's an Ivy League school, for goodness sake. 
You know, it's not like he, you know, went to the local community college or something, you know. Yeah. There was one more thing I thought in this first part. Jesus is uh, very shrewd. Yeah, and now there's an interesting thing. I agree with you. A lot of people don't like that word. Because when you say you're shrewd, it implies what? Yeah, that you, you're up to no good. But it's true. He is. In fact, he, he criticizes his followers. He says, the children of darkness are more shrewd than you guys. You need to wise up. You need to smarten up. Uh, this is something that many philosophers did as well. I mean, um, Epictetus was famous for criticizing his, his disciples for being stupid. <laughs> Get shrewd. You need to be shrewd. You need to be wise. Wise as a serpent. Yeah, wise as a serpent. Um, now, um, another thing. So Jesus uh, doesn't take the questions at face value understands people are out to get him, two, picks the, you know, the, the conditions and the time and the location for his actions, doesn't let other people do that to him. So first of all, he says, I'm not going to go, and then he goes. That's an interesting thing to think about. And then the third thing is he speaks in code. And this is something that I think, again, uh, a lot of us miss. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus comes right out and tells you, I'm speaking in code <laughs> for a reason. I'm speaking in code for a reason. And uh, there in chapter 13, beginning at verse 10, like when I was a young Christian, I thought that parables were, uh, you know, Jesus trying to make complicated ideas simple. But his exact opposite is taking simple ideas and making them complicated. And he tells you that's what he's doing. Um, so let's look at verse 10 there in uh, chapter, 13, chapter 13. Um, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Did you ever notice how impatient his own disciples were with his own coded speech? Speak plainly. Can't you just say what you mean? No, <laughs> I'm not going to say what I mean. Not yet, anyway. And then finally, at the end, he's almost, he's, he's getting ready to go to the cross, and they're like, at last, he's speaking plainly. The whole way along, they're like, what is this guy up to? He's speaking in code. He answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but it has not been given to them. Okay. This is esoteric speech. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, now and then he, gives, he, he, he quotes Isaiah, say I'm fulfilling this prophecy. Is it just to fulfill the prophecy? Or is there like a practical benefit to this approach? Imagine yourself standing in front of a crowd and there are a bunch of guys in the back with rocks. That's what he faced every time he went out in public. It didn't take a lot for those guys to start throwing the rocks. They were ready to throw the rocks. They wanted to kill him. So if you've got an audience like that and there are a bunch of guys in the back, and these are legal experts. We're not just talking about hooligans. We're not just talking about 
guys who just like picking fights. We're talking about guys who are politically connected and see you as a threat and want to do you in, and they're looking for any excuse to do it. You're trying to get your message out. How do you do it? Well, we have some examples in the Old Testament. Remember Nathan the prophet? He had some very difficult truths to convey, a message to convey to King David, right? Once upon a time, there was a man, and he had a sheep. It was his only sheep. He loved that sheep. It even went to bed with him. <laughs> you know, and then David's like, oh, I get this, I get this. I, I know what that's like. And then there was a wealthy man had many sheep, lived right next door. And he had some visitors one day, and the visitors needed to be fed. But the wealthy man didn't want to give one of his own sheep up. No. He looked over and saw the other man's sheep and said, Ah, I know what I will do. I will take my neighbor's sheep, and I will sacrifice that sheep and have a great barbecue, and all my neighbors will think I'm the greatest guy in the world, or my guests will think I'm great. And the only person that we put out is that poor man who has nothing, you know, to defend himself with. David's getting madder and madder and madder and madder, and he gets a, that man deserves to die! And what's Nathan say at that point? It's you. <laughs> That's a pretty, pretty savvy approach. <laughs> That's Jesus every parable. You know, Fill in the blank. Who are you in my story? Now, sometimes they get it. They knew he was talking about them, but they couldn't accuse him of it. Right? Because they would have to fill in the blank and say, I'm the guy that you're talking about. <laughs> and they didn't want to own up to that. But in order to... So in other words, he was able to sometimes get his message across in such a way that they couldn't use it against him. Like if he had just come out and said it, you know, you guys you know, are, are this, then, you know... Time for the, throw, the, throw, the stones to start being thrown, you know. So this, this approach, you know, he's talking about, you know, the sower. And then he goes on to explain himself. This is, this is a fascinating thing when he does explain himself. So look at verse 34 in chapter 13. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. So he's not in public anymore. He's in a private space. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows, and he gives them an explanation. And he tells them that the reason why they get the explanation is because... They're supposed to know. They're on the inside. They get to understand. They get to know. But the other guys are not supposed to know. At least not yet. That's another thing to think about. Sometimes things are uh, hidden for a period of time and then revealed when it's the time to reveal those things. We're not, a, we're not very comfortable with this. So I like to reflect on this, on, on the why we are not comfortable with this. Maybe you have some thoughts about why we're not comfortable with this. Yeah, David. It is the Holy Spirit that interprets God's word. So if God's word is in a parable, you're only going to know it if the Spirit of God gives it to you because the Spirit of God knows your heart. And yeah, yeah I, I think that's, that's good. I'm not thinking about why that. I'm thinking about we, we have this tendency to want everything to be plain and easy. 
simple to understand. In fact, we measure the uh, effectiveness of the teacher by how easy the teacher makes it for you to understand. He's a great teacher. I come away, all my questions answered. I never have a question. When Jesus left the room, like, people were like, what? what is he talking about? <laughs> what was that? I have no idea. What do you think he meant? Why would a teacher speak enigmatically on purpose? Any thoughts? Just for that reason, they're, they're asking each other. They're, thinking, they're, they're passing it out. They're, they're having to use their minds. That's right. They have to work. So uh, I think that that's a thing that in our time we've, we've lost is great teachers in the past wanted you to work. And they would make it intentionally difficult in order to force you to work mentally. I have to apply myself to understand what's talk, what he's talking about. Uh, it's not just going to be spoon-fed to me like I'm a baby. Right? So, you know, sometimes we just need to be able to say, okay, I need to think about that. So think, think about another thing to consider. Um, if you um, just spend all of your time creating these expectations that truth is always going to be easy to recognize uh, and receive, does that make you a, a, a person who really does the work of thinking, or do you go through life expecting everything to be sort of handed to you all the time? So you want, I think as a good teacher, you want to develop uh, your students in a way that they think for themselves. In other words, apply themselves, not just wait for everything to be presented to them. So I think that's one of the reasons. Yeah, Jennifer. Well, I started a new job on a team that had not been developed, but they were developing it. Um, and my t the training was so convoluted and so difficult, but because I had to apply myself extra hours every day to learn every solution that the company had and research, now I'm able to actually help other people. But if I hadn't worked so hard and cried and had fits <laughs> and had like, I can't do this job, and all, but, I, but I realized that if it was just hand-fed to me, I might not really know it. Yeah, yeah so challenging. Uh, matters have a way of kind of sorting us out. One of the things that this demonstrates is you, you had a real desire to know. You were willing to put in the work because you really, really wanted to know. And I think um, that matters. That matters a lot. You know, sort of your desire, your desire to know. Other thoughts? Yeah, Mark. Just thinking in Psalm 1 of the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates. Yeah on it day and night. He is mining it out, sorting it out, because he has a desire to figure that out. If you, I know you have, but it, others maybe have not, but if you've actually sat under the feet of somebody who has memorized the scripture in a great deal, but is not a believer, they're a scholar, and their purpose <laughs> is not yeah. godly. It's not, they do not delight in the law right. of God. They, they don't see anything that's there. Yeah. The things that are they're clearly taught to those who are meditating upon it yeah. and understanding it and looking for it and delighting in it, right. it's lost on them. Um, not, you could say it's malicious what they're doing, yeah. perhaps. You know, that's part of it, but it also goes completely past them. Yeah, yeah. Was it Khrushchev that had memorized the entire New Testament? Um, 
there's a number. Brittany. Yeah, I think that people just appreciate things more when they struggle more for them. Yeah. And I know that with me and my kids, when we go on walking trails that are very difficult, the ones that you can't just drive to, we actually really are satisfied mm -hmm. materially when we actually get there. And we know that the people who are also meet at the top of the trailhead, they work hard too. So we have more of a yeah. camaraderie with the same people we know have struggled just to get there as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. The fellowship of fellow strugglers. <laughs> but there is something to that. You know, there's like you kind of now are in this group of people who have all put in a lot of work to achieve something. And it's it's more valuable, and you value those friendships, right? Yeah, David. I would, uh, whenever I would read the parables, and I would always think when I was a lot younger, um, wow, those Pharisees, man, they're just really stupid people. They don't understand these <laughs> parables. But then there was a parallel that I really had an epiphany of, I don't know, about ten years ago. There are people in the know who produce movies. And they, when they produce them, they're actually telling you what's happening. And they're telling you in a story. And there have been so many of these been told all the way from the early 70s up till now. And people aren't clueless. Right. That's right. a perfect analogy of what was actually happening back then. It's like, what is this movie even about? We don't, we're just entertained. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. a very interesting analogy. I just thought it was great. Yeah, well, I think if you develop your, you know, your, your, you know, your critical faculties, so to speak, your ability to, 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 to listen and to think and to judge, uh, you'll get better and better at it. Now, it's, you know, I've used the term judge, and sometimes people uh, only think of that in a kind of a negative sense, in the sense that we shouldn't judge and, you know, that kind of thing. But it's impossible to go through life, this is what I've noted, without judging. You know, every day you're at the grocery store, or you're sitting at a restaurant looking at a menu, or you're making judgments about what you think will make you happy, or what you think would be satisfying. Or like if you're, in a, if you're thinking about uh, a potential mate to somebody you could marry, you're, you're judging that person. You're saying, well, that person's got this strength, this weakness, here's me, I have this strength. So we never really get away from it. Yep, Naomi. Yeah, so what's, what was sticking out to me in these verses is for the heart of the people has become dull. Mm -hmm. So to what you were saying about practice and then what Mark was saying about meditating, it, you do have to sharpen. Yeah, um, yeah you, need to, you need to have, uh, and the only way to do that is to do it. Um, you know, Aristotle is uh, known for saying some things that you're like, huh? Then you think about it and say, yeah, okay, yeah, I guess that's right. So he says, you learn to tell the truth by telling the truth. You learn to be courageous by doing courageous things. You're like, okay, well, <laughs> I just want to know where to start. <laughs> if I'm, 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 I'm not a courageous person. How do I do a courageous thing? Well, uh, Aristotle would say something as brilliant as just do it. <laughs> you know, you just kind of do it. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. So, like, maybe initially uh, it's just really easy for you to lie because you know that if I say what's really the case, I'm going to look bad. It's, it's going to be... I got to have to deal with the consequences, all that kind of stuff. But then you actually do it. You know, maybe just for the first time in your life, I actually tell the truth. <laughs> then you're like, oh, okay, wow, I can do that. I'm going to do it again on a larger scale, that kind of thing. And I think this is also the case when it comes to understanding God's word is when you apply yourself and just give yourself to it and it becomes clearer as you think about it. And obviously, you're praying, 
you're using scripture to interpret scripture, all those good practices. But, um, you know, it just kind of, you get better at it as you do it. Yeah. Could you explain um, what you think, what the words mean and the phraseology of being wise as a serpent yeah. and innocent as a dove and what it is about a serpent that's wise and what it is about a dove that's innocent yeah, and yeah. what's being communicated yeah. kind of fully there. Well, you think about snakes. I mean, this is maybe the only place in the Bible where you're told to be like a snake. <laughs> so what is it about snakes? So this, this is good to think about because all of the analogies I think we kind of get intuitively. We just kind of like, oh, I know what he's getting at. But we could break it down a little bit. So do snakes kind of hang out in the open a lot? There's something to think about. Or are they always under the rock, you know, kind of out of view, you know? Um, is the snake kind of always, does the snake kind of sort of like uh, make his intentions known all the time? You know, or is it kind of as coming at things at an angle a lot? You know, everything about like the, the pieces on a chessboard, this is a fun thing to think about, how they move. So, like, the queen has got, like, this super radius that she just can go in any direction she wants, but there's only one move that she can't make that the, another piece can make. It's the knight. The knight is the queen killer. That's the thing to remember. The knight is designed to move in such a way that it can kill the queen. Now, the reason why the king doesn't do all this stuff is because the king is like, you lose the king, it's over, baby. <laughs> so, so you just make sure that everything is safe for the king, right? You know, protect the king at all costs. But, uh, you're, you know, under certain circumstances, you could sacrifice the queen and win the game. But there are all these different things that are sort of in play. But the bishop is interesting. The bishop comes at at an angle. Never straight on. Never like the castle, right? You know, uh, it's just, or the queen. It's just like coming at you at the angle. What's your angle? <laughs> you know, you think about it, what's that mean? You know, it means that there's, there's something about the, the bishop that's crafty. Anyway, something to remember when you're dealing with bishops. <laughs> what about the dove? The dove. Well, we think about the dove. I've got morning doves that come and visit our feeder. They're always very uh, kind of soft, and even the sound, the sound of their approach, you know, they're easily frightened. I mean, you don't, no one's afraid of them. A lot of people, you see a snake. And, uh. Yeah, Dave. Uh, do you think God raises up judges on purpose that are more of a scoundrel type for his own ends and that he raises his own people up for other works? That's why, just a thought, he's asking his own people to be like the serpent in thought but like a dove but it seems like he does raise up people who are non-Christians for a particular purpose that these people think exactly like the evil in order to really get yeah well you know that's of course one of the objections the Israelites had to you know being chastised by the, the, the Babylonians or the Assyrians like they were worse than us you know, but God uses them. Now, let's think about this. Uh, let's, let's go back to this, the serpent and the dove. So if, if, the, if you're wise as a serpent but as uh, innocent as a serpent, do you trust them? No. If you're as wise as a dove and as innocent as a dove, are you trustworthy? 
you're just a pigeon. <laughs> you see what I'm getting? You, you, you wouldn't entrust, like, let's say, let's say someone is totally naive but, but has a heart of gold. Are you going to, like, give them your gold? Look after this for me. Invest it. No. You know, you're going to say, I, you know, yeah, I mean, I have them watch my dog. You know, I can trust them with that. But am I going to trust them with anything, like, of great value? No, you need to have that combination. You need to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And this, that's one of the more marvelous things I've talked about, the film Casablanca. And by the way, it's not like I'm endorsing everything in Casablanca. Okay, I had a guy accuse me of that the other day. He was like, you recommended Casablanca, but there was this problem. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I remember the fun part. How dare you? That was pretty much it. I was like, but my point was that something about Rick, his character, think about how the movie ends. So she, at the very end, uh, so uh, what's her name again? Uh, Ingrid Bergman. Uh, she's torn because she loves Rick and Victor. Victor is the... <laughs> Victor is the freedom fighter from Czechoslovakia who had been imprisoned. So what happened, just to kind of do a quick review, so uh, they, they became uh, lovers in Paris, uh, and she didn't know her husband was still alive. She thought he was dead. And then she gets word that Victor is alive, and then she needs to go back to him and abandons uh, Rick. And Rick doesn't know what's going on. He thinks that she's just, you know, dumped him. So he's hurt. So anyways, she's, she comes, she's on the run with her husband from the Nazis, and she comes into Rick's Café American, and this is the great line, of all the gin joints in all the world, she had to walk into mine. <laughs> That's it, because it brings back all the memories. And, and, it, and then she kind of, kind of is torn, because she really did love Rick, but she loves Victor. And, but there's this point where she just says to, to Rick, you decide. In other words, if you want me to go with you, I will go with you. And, and Rick says, I'll take care of it. And at the very end, it's when he reveals to her that he wants her to go with her husband, wants her to be faithful to her husband. And that's the famous scene at the end. You know, if you don't go with him, we'll regret it. And, and then she's, he's having to talk her into not going with him. He really is a super stand-up guy. <laughs> and then he kills the Nazi. <laughs> No, so that they can get away. Um, but all the way along, everybody, even the bad guys, trust Rick. They know he's super wise, super sharp. Everybody respects his intelligence. Everybody expects his, respects his judgment. But they also know you can trust him. That's where the Peter Lorre, Rick, Rick, I have many friends in Casablanca, but because you despise me, you're the only one I trust. <laughs> and so Rick says, yeah. <laughs> that's... that's I love imitating Peter Lorre. <laughs> anyway, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, well, David, David asked a lot, so I'm, I'm going to... Well, I mean, back to, the, back to my story, see? Back <laughs> to the idea of Jesus talking and you, what you were saying about who's, who's he talking to? And, you know, so he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In chapter 7, later on, it goes, but many came to believe in him. So there's this debate going on between he and them, and it's these guys over here that are all of a sudden following. Yeah. The twenty, is to say. I, I really enjoy this uh, talk. Um, 
It takes you back to Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> I, if I had to be a camp, I'm more of a Trump camp, a lot of stuff. And it's because reading the way uh, the way he handled the Pharisees, especially in chapter eight, your father's the devil. I yeah. mean, yeah. he was. There was no parables there. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Yeah. He, he 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 did, and it, there were times where he was completely clear. That's yeah. true. I was wondering <laughs> next week you could tackle that side of him because he seemed to have yeah. all these skills. Because if you unpack the second half of chapter eight, they wanted to kill him at the end. I mean, it just tells you at the end there there were. About ready to kill him. Yeah. Kill him in chapter six. So, you know, to keep the whole thing in kind of perspective, he wants them to kill him eventually, but at the right time. So he's taunting them all along. You know, you want to kill me, don't you? You know, you do. (laughs) Go ahead. Not today, though. It's not the right time. You know, I'm going to lay my life down when I say it goes down. So there are times for that bold, direct, but he was very calculating even in that. So David and then Mark. Yeah. Was he, um, when he was taunting the Pharisees, the religious elite, was he also trying to, like you said, ta- he's talking to the audience. Oh, sure. The audience is listening to these. Oh, and the, and the audience is digging it. They're loving it. <laughs> it's like Trump. You know, he's got his despicable people. They're just loving what he's doing. But Jesus is innocent in their eyes. So they're seeing the difference. Well, there's that, but they also see him as their man. Yeah. Jesus is that. the one coming in the name of God. Yeah. So they choose his side. Well, yeah, yeah, and, and you know, uh, yeah, that's, that's a, certainly a big part of it. Yeah. So, Mark? Just kind of putting it in context for us as families and covenant yeah. children and so forth. We're raised in homes with parents where we're supposed to be honest and sure. open and... Yeah. and we understand, um, we kind of move not bearing false witness to tell everything <laughs> honestly, openly, yeah. plainly as, as you can. But then there's a world outside of our homes that our children and us have to go into. It is a world of wolves. Yeah. And because we've taught essentially one of the Ten Commandments is just say it plainly and honestly. If somebody asks you a question, you, you give it all to them. That's completely contrary to what Christ is saying here. Yeah, right. It's completely contrary to, to casting your pearls before swamp. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's why there's a lot of doves and doves yeah. rather than serpents <laughs> and doves. Yeah, yeah you, and again, it gets back to know your audience and know the setting. If you're in a loving home, then uh, you're not surrounded by people who are out to get you. Um, you're dealing with people that you, we want to be completely open with and, and have a good relationship with. And that's super important. Uh, and the same thing ought to be true in church. Uh, challenge, of course, is when you get to Presbytery, and sometimes you wonder. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, not, not here. <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, yeah, these are all great things to think about, and I don't have it all figured out. I'm still working through some things, but this is part of my what I've been working on here a lot lately as I've been thinking about my book. I think this ties into the problem. There's a time to answer a fool, yeah. and a time not to answer a fool. Yeah. And Jesus, when he answered a fool, answered them not all the same way. Yeah. I think that's what we're kind of seeing. Right, right. Yep, yep. I think it's just 
you know, the old saying I've used it many times, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. <laughs> they, there are people out there who really want to get you, you know. Anyway, well, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word, and we do pray that you'll help us be discerning, to know when we're among uh, people who are worthy of our trust, and help us in those settings to, to be trustworthy ourselves, but also help us to uh, recognize when we find ourselves uh, in settings where we're surrounded by wolves and help us to be wise uh, to that, uh, but at the same time innocent in how we conduct ourselves, not um, putting ourselves unnecessarily at risk or in harm's way, knowing that there are times where we do have to give an account uh, for the hope that we have and that in those, in those moments, uh, we should look to you for the words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.